All right, well, thank you for bearing with us for just a second. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And, and, and as we're getting started, I'm just curious, um, how many of you happen to have dealt with a bit of a stomach issue this past week? Yeah, I'm in with you on that. Me, me too. Um, and I don't, I don't know about you, but there was about a... 10 to 12 hour period where I was pretty confident I was going to die. Um, I, I think it got close at one point. I'm, I'm not sure. But, um, but we're past it uh, now. So hopefully it'll quit doing damage within our church. Um, and you're here, so I assume you're feeling okay. So praise the Lord for that. And if, if you happen to be watching online because you were up all night in the bathroom last night, I feel for you. But... But we're moving into chapter 9 of uh, Nehemiah this morning. And in chapter 9, we find one of the greatest chapters on prayer and repentance in the Bible. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 9 contains the longest specific prayer in the Bible. Um, That is if you don't count the Psalms. So, you know, some people will count the Psalms as prayer. So like Psalm 119 is all one prayer. But... But if you, if you, if outside the Psalms, if you don't count that, this is the longest specific prayer that we find in the Bible. It covers 35 verses. Now, we're not actually going to get to it, the, the prayer itself, until next Sunday, but it is, it is quite interesting. And what's also interesting is, is Nehemiah chapter 9 is also linked together with two other chapter 9s in the Old Testament. It's linked with Ezra chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9. They're all very similar chapters that, that include national prayers. And it's not, it's not our point of study today, at least. We might look at that a little bit next week. But, but it is interesting. The comparison it's, of, of those is very interesting. It's very instructive. But what we're going to see this morning here in these first few verses of chapter 9 is the result of everything that happened in chapter 8. That was obviously a very important chapter. And in chapter 8, the people of Jerusalem, they set the word of God at the center of their lives and they began to reestablish their community inside the newly built walls and gates. And they participated in those fall feasts, including the Feast of Tabernacles, where they had lived in booths, you know, many like tabernacles for a week. And now... It was time, as we move into chapter 9, it was time for them to settle back into real life, so to speak. But, but life wasn't the same. God's word had a marked effect. They have a new built city. Their eyes have been opened to God's word. They had spent time reading and understanding. And, and God's word had caused a change in them. It's, it's what the word of God will always do if you'll let it. So Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the word of God does. It it works in a very unique way. It's a work that only God's word can do, and it penetrated their hearts and their souls, and they weren't the same. Praise the Lord for the work of his word in our life. But because of the timing of the feast and such, they really hadn't taken the time to fully comprehend all that they had learned from God's word, including where they had fallen short. And that's what we see in chapter 9. So in, in chapter 9 is a, is a chapter of confession and repentance. You know, we saw that they had felt sorry in chapter 8 a little bit, but Nehemiah and Ezra told them to hold on to that because it was feast time. But now was their time to process it all. And, and so now is their time to confess and get right with the Lord. And so that's the theme of chapter 9 is confession. That's what the prayer that we'll see specifically next week is all about. But it, it's not only confession. It doesn't stop there. Because for them and for us, it's not only about confession, It's about repentance, because it's one thing to confess, but it's another thing to change. And it's one thing to get right at a certain time, it's another thing to stay right the rest of the time. 
Now, I, I, I want you to take a second and consider the timing. So they had just gone through that feast season. They had gone through the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the month, Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the month, the Feast of Tabernacles, starting on the fifth day of the month, lasting seven days. And they had just lived in, in those booths for that week. And this was a, a celebratory season. It was a contemplative season, but it was a celebratory season as well. And there's no real true comparison for us, but, but I want you to kind of think about it this way. It's kind of like on, on January 2nd or Jan, January 3rd, right? We've been through the holidays. It's a good time, a celebratory time. But now it's time for life to get back to normal, right? You know how that feels. And it, it can be even a little bit weird at times. But, but, but here's the thing. For the children of Israel at, at this time, there was no such thing as normal. It was all new. And their eyes had just been opened to the word of God. And they had been brought through those holy days. And so now they're faced with trying to figure out what living holy looks like, even when it's not holy feast days. And that's a life that you and I need to learn about this morning. And not only waiting to get right with the Lord when something big in life happens but living a life that is constantly evaluating where we're at with the Lord. And, and here's the key, making repentance part of our life. And, and I know that, that kind of some, for some of us might sound weird. It might sound a little bit bad. It's like, oh man, because if I have to repent, well, that means I'm not in a good spot. Okay, well, but that's the reality of life. We don't always walk a straight and narrow line. And so we have to be able to constantly evaluate, analyze where we're at, and then repent of the things that aren't right and get back to what God has for us. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Because what you'll find is if you live that life, you'll see real change. And you'll find that you need to repent less and less as time moves on. Because you'll stay in, in, in constant fellowship with Lord. And so this morning I want to show you what that looks like. I've, I've titled today's message, The Realities of Repentance. Because there are certain things that need to be real in, in, in our life in order to be a person who's constantly evaluating ourselves for personal holiness. And having a lifestyle that includes repentance. Where it's baked into your DNA as part of your relationship with the Lord. And as you spend time with the Lord, you're... You're letting the Word of God be that mirror and show you who you are and really what's going on in your life. You see, I believe too many of us go through not life not honestly dealing with ourselves and our sin day to day. And we wait until something blows up and there's an emergency. And, and, and just to be honest, that is the cause of much I would even maybe say most of the counseling that we deal with here at the church is because there have been years of sin and dysfunction and now something really bad has happened. So, I mean, I got no other shot. I mean, let me see if the Lord will fix it. And he will. It just doesn't have to be that way. It's way harder that way. And, and the more sin and dysfunction you allow to compound the more difficult it is to break through it. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a story of a guy who was on his deathbed, and, and, he, was, and he, he had not been a, a very good guy, and he hadn't been the best husband. And he calls his wife in, and, and he says, Honey, there's some, there's some things that I need to tell you. Um, I've not been as faithful in this marriage as I should have been. And, and she was very calm, and, and she took in what he was saying, and, and she said, listen, you don't, you don't have to say anymore. Like, I know what you did, and, and I knew it all along, and, th and that's why I poisoned you. <laughs> and, and I'm just saying that sometimes, sometimes things don't have to get as bad as they get. If you're just willing to evaluate and confess and repent up front. And this is what we're going to see today. 
Now, last week we got some handles for, for holiness, and today we're going to see some realities of repentance. So Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to study verses 1 through 3. It's a very short section of scripture, but one I believe is filled with good truth for us this morning. So starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for the day we have before us. We're so thankful to be able to gather together as one body. We're so thankful to be in this place uh, sitting under the preaching of your word, Lord. Uh, we pray that, that you will continue to allow us to be able to do that. You will uh, just motivate us to be here each and every time, Lord, that your word is open uh, for our own good. Lord, I pray that you use your word today to do the work that only it could do, like it did in the lives of, of the nation of Israel at this time in their history. Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray above all that it's honor and glorifying to you. I pray that, pray that everything we're doing today, it's a sweet savor. It's a great day. We had baptisms. We'll do communion tonight. Lord, it's just um, our way of worshiping you as you've commanded us to do. And, and Lord, we're grateful to do it, Lord. So I pray that you be with us today. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into our main points this morning, let me set the stage for you. So, so Nehemiah chapter 8, it lasts 22 days. It started on the 1st, it goes through day 22, and here we are two days later, right? The, this chapter 9 begins on the 24th day of this month. So two days later, the feast had just ended and the children of Israel are assembled together again. And I point that out because I want you to see the urgency they expressed in dealing with their sins before the Lord. Nehemiah and Ezra had told them, hold on, now's not the time to cry. And everything is over and they want to get it right. They want to get right with the Lord. And like I mentioned in the introduction, so many times we wait. We wait until something happens. Maybe it's a good thing. Like a church conference and the preaching of God's word hits us and we finally respond. Or maybe it's something bad and our sin finally catches up to us. Or, or we get a bad diagnosis. Whatever it is, it could be anything. But it's only then that we determine it's time to take stock of where we're at with the Lord. I want to encourage you this morning not to do that. To not wait. Make repentance a part of your life. And here's how you do it. Here's what you need to make real in your life if you want to stay right with the Lord. And it starts with consistent internal dissection. Consistent internal dissection of yourself. We need to consistently be evaluating what is going on inside us. Look back at verse 1 and see, we'll see how this plays out with the children of Israel. Now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. Now fasting and sackcloth and, and earth or ashes as you see it in, in other places in the Bible, were all cultural representations of mourning and repentance for the nation of Israel. And I want to break these down for you and, and show you what they are biblically and then and how to apply them personally and devotionally to an internal dissection and personal examination. So, so let's start with fasting. You know, what is the deal with fasting? It's something we obviously have heard about. We obviously know about it. It's, you know, many of you are intermittent fasting uh, for, for, you know, diet reasons or, or whatever. But I'm not sure we have a full understanding of the spiritual significance of what fasting is. Is it for today? Is it not? I want to talk about all of that. And we're not going to do a detailed study, but I want to give you an overview as it relates to, to where we're going with this point. And fasting, very generally, is a vehicle by which someone brings their body under control in order to focus on what God wants to do in their lives. So, it's the display of temperance and the discipline of our flesh for a spiritual priority. For a spiritual priority. And the ability to control our bodies, to control our flesh, is, is obviously something we talk about a lot, and it's a key component to glorifying God with your life. 
We've looked at Proverbs 25. We could go to any pla- all sorts of places in the Bible, but we've looked at Proverbs 25, 28 many times in reference to Nehemiah and the importance of walls, but it applies here as well. It says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And that means if you can't control your own spirit, your own will, your own body, then you're like a city without walls, in other words, without defense. And when your walls are down, as we've learned through this study, you're, you are easy prey. You're easy prey to the devil. You're easy prey to the world system. This is how you become distracted by all that the world has to offer. It's because your walls are down. And, and you might still even be involved at some level and attend on, on Sundays, but, but you're not really where the Lord desires for you to be. And you're not building for the future because you're not focused on the right things, on the spiritual things of this life. And I'm telling you, it's, you know as well as I do, it's very easy to get focused on the wrong things. 1 Corinthians 14.32 is a very interesting verse. It says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And that has a, a specific meaning in the context, but, but for us it means that we have ultimately the control of us. So in order to stay focused on where you need to be spiritually, You have to place your spirit, your emotions, your will, and your body under the control of the Word of God. So living life through a lens of faith. And of course, the standard of our faith is the Bible. And that's what fasting gets to in the life of an individual. It's meant to bring your focus back to God and His Word. And it's something you see throughout the Old Testament. And you see it first with Moses. And while the term isn't used specifically, the first explicit reference is found in Exodus 34, 28. And it says, and he, this is speaking of Moses, he is Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So it obviously doesn't use the word fasting, but this is the first explicit reference to it that, that we see. Now, this was the second time, actually, that Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to, to hear from the Lord and, and for 40 days and 40 nights. The, the first time was in Exodus 24, and he gets mad, and they got to start over. But if you compare Deuteronomy 9.9 and Deuteronomy 10.10, it's, it's pretty clear that he fasted that first time as well in Exodus 24. It's just not specifically stated there. It's specifically stated here in Exodus 34. But either time, they're both the same. This first reference gives us a clue as to what God wants to accomplish through fasting. God wants to reveal to us truths of his word that we need in our lives. It's very simple. God has set aside fasting for us. Now, we have to do it the right way and and with the right attitude. We'll, We'll talk about that. But God has a purpose with fasting, too. Like, we have a purpose to show him that we're going to bring our bodies under control. But God has a purpose for for it too. God God created everything and set everything up, and his purpose is to reveal to us truths of his word that we need. Truths that are more important than even food at that time. That's what Job told us in Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. There may be times in our life that that is true of us as well. We, we saw this same thing with Jesus in the wilderness when after his baptism and before he be, really begins his public ministry and he spends those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and right before he's tempted by the devil, he fasted. And so it's, what it is is putting a limit on the physical so we can focus on the spiritual. But it takes discipline and intentionality to focus on what's important. And, and listen... The truth is, we live in a society and a culture where discipline isn't always considered a virtue. In some circles it still is, that's a good thing. But in others, excess is celebrated more than discipline. And it's not one of the strong points of our society anymore like it might have been in the past. But it is necessary for the people of God to be able to consistently step back and see Who is really in control in your life? Is it the old man or the new man? 
And, and ultimately, it's what it's about. It's about con- control. It's always about control. Because sometimes, even in our desire to serve the Lord and seek Him out in His Word, we still want control. So we'll use things like fasting and prayer in an attempt to manipulate God. And we think, if I do this, if I fast and I pray, surely then, I mean, God has to give me what I want if I do that. Right? This is how this has to work. Then we get mad when it doesn't work that way. And we think, well, man, this whole Christianity thing is bogus. And God's a liar. It doesn't work. I have tried. It doesn't work. And the truth is, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God's not your personal genie that you get to manipulate and call on for your own personal desires. Listen, even when they're good desires. This is exactly what we were talking about last week with holiness. We try to manufacture holiness, but that's not how it works. It's not about trying harder. It's actually about trying less through surrender. That's what God wants. It's the same is true of fasting. It's not about, listen, fasting is not about getting what you want. It's about giving up control to the Lord and expressing to him in action that he takes priority. And ultimately, you want what he wants. You just need him to reveal it to you. So when you talk about fasting, it's not about ceremony. It's not about methodology. It's not about details. It's about heart attitude. And you even see that in our passage here in Nehemiah. There's a very minute and yet interesting detail of the wording in verse 1. It says, Now on the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with, with fasting. The Bible says they were assembled, they were gathered together with fasting, not assembled too fast. And you may think, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because it was not some ceremonial thing that they all went to. They didn't plan a fasting meeting. They came together with fasting. They had been listening to the word of God. They had been hearing the things that had been forgotten for a few generations in Israel. And they were convicted. And they all just knew that they had to bring some things under control. So fasting was the result, not the plan. Isaiah 58 gives us further instruction on fasting and how it should be approached. In verse 3, God's speaking about the children of Israel. He's, 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 he's speaking like third person through them. And he says, wherefore have we fasted? Say they, and thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? You understand what they're saying here? They're saying, hey God, we've been fasting. Haven't you noticed? We've been praying, we've been fasting, and, and you've still not given us what we want. Why is that? We thought that's how this worked. And God answers them and says, Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. And that word exact means to oppress or harass. And God was telling them they were just doing it for show. Because while they were indeed fasting, they weren't doing it for the right reasons. They weren't turning from their evil ways like the Ninevites did in the book of Jonah. They just wanted to be seen. Kind of like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Verses 11 and 12, when he's condemning the, the, the sinner, the publican, and he says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican who was trying to get right with the Lord. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of, of all that I possess. And God didn't honor it at all because it wasn't done with the right heart. And that's what fasting and praying to God is about for so many people. It's about, look at me. God, look at me. Everyone else, look at me. 
When all God wants us doing is looking at Him. I don't care how good you're looking, still not worth looking at. <laughs> Only He is. And that's what God tells the Israelites back in Isaiah 58, if we continue on in that passage. Pick it back up in verse 5. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? And all those questions are rhetorical because he was saying, that's not what I have in mind. But starting in verse 6, he tells them exactly what he does have in mind. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. You see, that's what real fasting is about. It's not about manipulating people. It's not about manipulating God. It's not about getting what you want. It's about getting free from the sin that binds you. It's about disciplining our flesh because gaining freedom from sin, it's, we have to. It's so much more important to do that. And we're not going to take the time to go through all of it, but if you keep reading in Isaiah 58, you see the result of that type of fast. God honors it. Because God desires for you to give up control and surrender to him. And when you do that, God accepts that sacrifice. And you get freedom. And you get peace. Some of the stuff we talked about last week. There's joy available in doing things the Lord's way. But that is the key. You don't get to decide the path. And so that, at a super high level, kind of the nuts and bolts a fasting, but you know, question for us is: Is it is fasting for today? Is this just something that the nation of Israel did under the law that they required to do? Is fasting something that we're required to do? Is it just an Old Testament thing? Um, and so, let me answer that for you. I believe, absolutely believe, that there is a place for fasting today. But like we've been talking about all along, it just gets to your motive. Because there's nowhere in the New Testament where we are commanded to fast. All right? there's, no, like, well, there's certain commands we have. As a church, we're given two ordinances, the baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Right? So those are what we're going to hold to. We don't have a fasting ordinance, even as individuals. There's nowhere in the New Testament where we're commanded to fast. Paul actually talks little about fasting, although he does mention it a couple times, that he includes it in, in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11 as a mark of a minister, and he includes it as, as things that he did. He also mentions it in 1 Corinthians 7 in the context of husbands and wives not forsaking intimacy unless it be for a short season to fast and pray over a particular situation. Some people, incorrectly, point to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 as the reason why we don't need to fast today, because Jesus and his disciples didn't. But that comes from taking Scripture out of context, not understanding the full passage, not understanding other parts of Scripture. But Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15 says, Then they, the Pharisees, uh, came to him, no, the disciples of John, I'm sorry, then came to him the disciples of John, saying, they do we and why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, then shall they fast. So they're coming saying, Listen, we're fasting. You guys aren't doing it at all. Why is that? And he's like, Well, it's because I'm here. I don't need to fast. I'm with them. But when he's not here, he said, Then they'll fast. And today, he's not physically around. And so when you move into the book of Acts, you see fasting. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, we see fasting with the church of Antioch. I think this is the best New Testament example. Because it was through fasting and prayer that God was able to instruct them to send out Barnabas and Saul. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, Now there were in the church that was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I called them. You, you kind of see the order of things, right? As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, that's when the Holy Ghost was able to speak to them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and they laid hands on them, they sent them their way. 
So this was something major that they were seeking the Lord for. I mean, something they didn't want to mess up. And they needed to get it right. And they needed to hear from the Lord. And I think all of that gives us great instruction, instruction on fasting today. Do we have to do it? No, not necessarily. But if there is ever a time that you need to look inside and humble yourself because of the Lord, because you need freedom or because you need an answer from him, then God has given us fasting for that purpose. And it's still valid today. It's like it was in the days of Nehemiah. But again, there's no requirement. It's not the only way you hear from the Lord. God speaks to us through his word. He should speak to us every day. But that's the point of fasting, to get truths from God's word. So it's, all it is is the control of your body to spend time with the Lord. If you're not eating, but instead of that time, you're, you're watching Netflix, you're not fasting. I mean, maybe in the physical sense you are, but not the spiritual sense. It's meant that you set that time in that moment, spending time with the Lord and hearing from his word and the truths that we need for our life. It's more important than the necessary food. The spiritual is more important than the physical in that moment. Again, God speaks to us through his word. This is not the only way God talks to us. But it's not just something that was required under the law. You don't see that either. This is, this is about just, it it's goes throughout scripture. And it's something that God has given to his people. Old Testament, New Testament. But it's all about our motive. Do you talk about it? Do you expect God to give you what you want? If you are, then you're not doing it right. It's about discipline to show God he means more to you than even necessary food. Being able to control the desires of your body for him. But that's not all we see here in verse 1. We also see they assemble with sackcloths and earth upon them. And these are two separate things, but for sake of time and because they are usually grouped together in the Bible, I'm going to talk about them together. This will go much quicker than, than fasting. It has less relevance for us today, but there is a great picture in that. So throughout the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes is what you usually, usually see. Sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. So ashes or dirt, earth, like it says here, it's just another word for dirt. It was an, an expression an outward expression of a change of heart, and it was meant to demonstrate the sincerity of one's grief or repentance. So this was to show humility before the Lord so that he would intervene. And like fasting, and, and here's the difference, fasting shows control and discipline over the body. Sackcloth and dirt, sackcloth and ashes shows control and discipline over the mind. Because it was meant to take control of vanity and pride. So sackcloth was literally work clothes built out of goat hair. It was a, it was a humble look. It was just a humble look. It wasn't anything wrong with it. It wasn't, you know, you, you, you see pictures sometimes of like, you know, them wearing burlap sacks. It's not exactly right. Um, they were legitimate work clothes that even shepherds wear. The point of them was just a humble look. It was a humble attire. It was a work attire. And ashes or dirt, earth, was to remind the individual where they came from. That they were originally taken from the earth, according to Genesis 2-7. Right? And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And that they were formed and created by God, not the other way around. So it was a picture of dying to self. And a second ago, I said it was pictures, it was meant to control the mind. Because that is where pride is formed. Pride comes from not having the mind of Christ. Which according to Philippians 2 is a mind of humility. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what is that mind? Well, this, is, this was his mind, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself 
became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The mind of Christ is a humble mind, a mind of humility, and pride wants none of that. Your pride only wants what it wants, and I promise you, 100%, it wants to vaunt itself against God. So not only is it not having the mind of Christ, it's actually having the mind of Satan. Because that was Lucifer's sin. It was pride. The mind of Christ, humility. The mind of Satan, pride. In Isaiah 14, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The very opposite of humility and submission. In picture for us, we obviously, so fasting is something that we can do just like they did in the Old Testament. Well, well we're not putting on goat skin, you know, goat hair clothes and dropping ashes over our head today. Culturally, that would just be weird. God doesn't expect that of us. But there's a picture there for us. It just shows us the humility that we're supposed to have. Can we control our mind to push down our pride? Can we walk with the mind of Christ so that pride doesn't raise up in us? And just shows that in picture, that stark difference between Satan and Christ, between pride and humility, and that is a choice we have every day. It's just between him and me, between him and you. Are you going to depend on the Lord in humility or depend upon self and pride? So ultimately, all of this, Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, it all gets to control. It pictures who has control, you or the Lord. Who has control of your body? Who has control of your mind? And we always need to be evaluating our life to this end, asking ourselves these questions, and consistently dissecting our lives to see what's really going on inside of us. And if we have the right motives, or if we're being controlled by the flesh, do we need to bring our bodies and our minds under the control of God's word so we can glorify him with our lives? And if we can, then we should. It's where continual repentance starts. But then second, you also need consistent external division. So we start with consistent internal dissection. We're dissecting, we're evaluating ourselves. But then we got to look outside too. And sometimes there are some divisions that we need to make. Look at verse 2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So after the children of Israel looked within, they looked without, and they saw that they were surrounded by those that weren't helping them in their walk with God. They were strangers, meaning they weren't Jews. They were pagans. We'll see this again in chapter 13. There in verse 3 it says, Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they had separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And even there in that chapter, we'll even see, I mean, they had intermarried and some were even separating from their wives. And, and, and it was just the, the result of sin had, had led to some negative things. And I'm not telling you to separate from your wife. That's not, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. Uh, but but it's just sin leads us to very bad places. And there's a common theme throughout the Bible Old Testament and New Testament, in this danger of, of, of an unequal yoke, right? Of being unequally yoked, of, of, of intimately connecting ourselves with, with strangers, with, with folks that don't have the same uh, mission as us. Uh, we see it specifically in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 17, and we're going to have to speed up a little bit because we're running late on time. So I'm going to start talking fast, so you need to listen Faster. I don't know what that means. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 to 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Or what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, this section of Scripture is one that if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard. This is Biblical Separation 101. Unfortunately, I do believe it's a passage that has been misunderstood and abused, mostly in, in, in fundamental circles of the church. So some 
zealous Christians, some of them even sincerely, others not as sincere. They've turned separation into isolation, and their fellowship has become so narrow that they can't even get along with themselves. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But then in reaction to this extreme position, other believers have torn down all the walls, and under the guise of liberty, they have chosen to live however they want, in fellowship with anyone they want, no matter what that person believes or how that person lives. And this is true of churches as well. And while that can be mistaken, but it is mistaken for Christian love, it certainly ignores truth. We talked about some of this last week. So we're talking about an unequal yoke. And, and many of you are aware of this, but a yoke is a wooden frame, a bar that loops at either end, fitted around the necks of two animals, which tie them together. To function as one, right? That's what a yoke does. And the yoke is an important feature because for two animals to work together in a yoke, they need the same nature. You see, nature determines association. Nature determines association. So here, here, let me give you some example. Because since a pig has a pig's nature, it associates with other pigs in the mud. It's what a pig does. Because a sheep has a sheep's nature, a sheep associates with other sheep in the pasture, grazing the field. Well, a Christian has a divine nature and therefore should associate himself or herself intimately only with that which pleases the Lord. We'll forsake a time, we won't read the reference, but you see that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. So we don't want to yoke ourselves with someone that doesn't have a divine nature. We see this concept of unequal yoke initially in Deuteronomy 22.10. And this is very important because this gives us the distinction that we need to understand how to biblically not isolate ourselves and at the same time be effective for the mission. All right, so what we're, what we're getting ready to look at shows us that. It's Deuteronomy 22.10. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Okay, so we're talking about a yoke for the purpose of plowing a field. And to plow, to work together as ambassadors, to work the field that you have hopefully bought, you need the same nature as the people you're working that field with. You can't put an ox and an ass together and expect any work to get done because they can't have fellowship. They don't have the same nature. And in the Old Testament, the ox was a clean animal to the Jews, but the ass was unclean. You find that Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 through 8. Additionally, the ass in the Old Testament is a picture for us of an unsaved man. Exodus 13, 13, you can note the numbers there, if some of you understand that. It says, In every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break its neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. You see, an ass must be redeemed. That firstborn, it must be redeemed, or it was going to die. Job eleven twelve: For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. See, there's something wrong with, with the ass's birth. Back to the distinction that I was talking about. For, for us, we're not to work a field. We're not to, and, and a field of a home, a field in marriage, a field in ministry, a field in church. We're not to work a field with, a, with, with okay, with an unbelie with an ass, with an unbeliever. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, listen, please. I'm. I'm not saying that. I'm using Bible. But 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 this obviously doesn't mean that we don't make friends with the world in our mission to win them. Of course we should. We must. But we shouldn't link arms with them in an intimate way. They shouldn't have major influence over our spiritual lives. Improper association was the downfall of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It was the downfall. God called it spiritual adultery because they were stepping out on him with strangers. And we don't have time to go through it, but you can see it throughout. Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 4, places all over. 
And Israel committed spiritual adultery over and over again through their idolatry. And it got more brazen with time as their fellowship with God worsened and worsened. Ultimately to the point that it made it all the way into the temple. And this is interesting. I've actually showed this to you before, but it is worth repeating. You can trace Israel's idolatry through all the corrupt kings of, of Israel and Judah and see how the idols were moved closer and closer and closer to the temple over time, ultimately culminating with Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33.7 that says, And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, where? In the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which we have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. The place that God put his name, put his stamp. They brought the idols in it. And in verse 9, it says it was worse than the heathen. It was the worst thing that they could do, slapping God in the face, committing spiritual adultery, not behind his back, but in his face as they sat the idol down in the middle of the temple, and the temple was defiled. And listen to me, that describes the church and churches today so well. Slapping God in the face, and they start messing with the world a little bit and moving away from God's word. It just gets worse and worse over time. It's true of your life as well. And it gets to the point that carnality and idolatry is seen in the church and in pulpits every single Sunday. I don't know if you saw this, but there's Trinity Lutheran Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and we're having a drag to church event on May 2nd where they're having a drag queen speak. Now it's got canceled because of all the backlash. In a church, in America, drag him to church event. It's craziness and it is idolatry and God hates it. Don't let that stuff in your life. We can't let that stuff in this church. We gotta hold true to God's word. We gotta keep it pure. And from the midst of the church denigrating God's word and promoting idolatry and promoting themselves, what a shame. It's our job to guard against all this, to remain in sincere fellowship through truth and love so that we can separate when it's appropriate and not allow the wrong things in, both in the church and in ourselves. In our homes, what are you letting in your home? Does it slap God in the face? We need to consistently examine our external relationships, what we're allowing in, and see if any division is required. Do you have people in your life? Do you have things in your life externally that are detrimental to your walk with the Lord? Man, if so, take care of them. And then last, and ultimately the most important, it just can't be done properly if the first two realities aren't in, in place, is we need consistent eternal devotion. Verse 3, and they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. This is devotion to God through worship. And how did they worship him? They spent time in his word. For three hours, one-fourth part of the 12-hour day versus 12-hour night. They confessed what they needed to to the Lord for another three hours. That's prayer. And this prayer that is good for the soul, as Psalm 32.5 tells us. And all that constitutes worship. It's being open and honest with the Lord and obedient to His Word. That's worship. Being open with the Lord, being honest with the Lord, being obedient to his word. And there's beautiful balance in all of it. Balance with time in the word and time in prayer. God is worthy of that time. God is worthy of our energy. And that's what worship means. It means to ascribe worth. And that's what we want to be able to do through our thoughts and actions. And, and I say that because worship is a state of mind and heart. You see that here in Nehemiah chapter 9. But in the Bible, it's also shown as a state of posture and action, as you also see here in Nehemiah chapter 9. See, one of the devil's great tricks is to get us to live a good life 
but go without worship. Because worship is all that I am, paying homage or giving honor to all that God is. Psalm 29.2, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It gives you some insight on, on how he desires to be worshipped. So worship has to do with recognizing God as God with our life. Worship is the purpose of the believer's life. I mean, just look at the following verses. We have in Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord hath made all things of himself. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. In Revelation 4, 11, For thou art, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So we need to understand that, that worship should never be composed of your leftover anything. Your leftover time, your leftover money, your leftover energy. God demands the first fruits because that's what turns offering into worship. It's what makes it a sacrifice, and that's what the children of Israel were doing in Nehemiah chapter 9. They were sacrificing their time. They were doing it first before anything else. They didn't wait. The Feast of Tabernacles ended, and they're like, let's, let's give it to him. Let's give it to him. He deserves it. See, it's, it's not giving what you have left. It's giving him what you have up front because that's what your life is to be about, true devotion to him. And it's a devotion that is eternal, because we will do it eternally. But what a shame it is if you don't start until eternity. He wants us to worship him now and he deserves it. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do all the work? Why don't we start to consistently and honestly dissect ourselves internally? And see where we're at with the Lord and our motives around our relationship with him. Why don't we start to consistently and honestly evaluate our external relationships and see if there's any that are bad for us and that we need to separate from. And why don't we start to do the work to worship him and put the time in for him that will lead to real repentance and staying right with the Lord. Not just when something comes along to prompt us, but all the time. Living a life of willingness and continual repentance that's a life that will glorify him and I hope that is a life you desire let's have every head bow and every eye closed